This is an encore presentation from Veritas Radio. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Force has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show, where you listen because you don't want to believe, you listen because you want to know. I'm your host Mel Fabregas and I sincerely thank you for tuning in once again. A special welcome to you, our new listener. If this is your first time, make yourself at home and welcome to the Veritas family. Tonight's special guest is none other than John Lear, who lives on the moon and many other fascinating topics. Now to some news. I found a piece of interesting news, too long to read, but it's now posted on our blog with the title Moon Base Photo, set seen by top security Air Force veteran. A very appropriate article since we'll be discussing the moon a lot tonight and what could possibly be up there. And since today is Friday the 13th, I thought I'd share with you some interesting data. Friday the 13th makes those of you who believe in luck a bit nervous. And today is only the first of three Friday the 13ths this year. Mathematician Thomas Fernsler says, quote, I know more than probably anybody really wants to know about the number 13. Unquote. For instance, a year like 2009, with a triple set of Fridays falling on the 13th, typically only comes around every 11 years. Also, the 13th day of the month is more likely to fall on a Friday than any other day of the week. Those who share the phobia about 13 have a connection with some prominent historical figures. Napoleon, Herbert Hoover, 
and Franklin Daniel Roosevelt all feared it. Frenchler thinks this is normal. Quote, if you're not superstitious, maybe you should be. 87% of all the people in the world are superstitious about something. The other 13% are liars. Unquote. Here are some reasons why. The first person to die in a car accident was killed in New York City on September the 13th, 1899. The British Navy built a ship named Friday the 13th. On its maiden voyage, the vessel left the dock on a Friday the 13th and was never heard from again. The ill-fated Apollo 13 launched at 1313 Central Standard Time on April the 11th, 1970. The sum of the date digits is 13. The explosion that crippled the spacecraft occurred on April the 13th. Quarterback Dan Marino wore number 13 throughout his career with the Miami Dolphins. Marino is said to be the best quarterback who never won a Super Bowl. Butch Cassidy was born on Friday, April 13, 1866, and Fidel Castro was born on Friday, August 13, 1926. Very interesting, isn't it? Let's take a quick break, and when we return, our special guest, John Lear, joins us. Who lives on the moon? and many other topics. You will hear things on this interview you have never heard before. So buckle up and get ready for a great ride with this speed record-breaking pilot and fascinating man. You really don't want to miss this. Don't go anywhere. John Lear, 66, retired airline captain and former CIA contract pilot with over 19,000 hours of flight time, over 11,000 in command of three or four engine jet transports, has flown over 100 different types of aircraft in 60 different countries around the world. He retired in 2001 after more than 40 years of flying. Son of Lear jet inventor Bill Lear, John holds more FAA Airman certificates than any other FAA certified airman. John flew secret missions for the CIA in Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, and Africa between 1967 and 1983. During the last 17 years of his career, John worked for several passenger and cargo airlines as captain, Czech airman, and instructor. He was certified by the FAA as a North Atlantic Navigation Czech Airman. He has extensive experience as command pilot and instructor in the Boeing 707, Douglas DC-8, and Lockheed L-1011. John held 17 world records, including speed around the world in a Learjet Model 24, set in 1966 and was presented the PATCO, Professional Air Traffic Controllers Association Award, for outstanding airmanship in 1968. He's a senior vice commander of the China Post 1, the American Legion's Post for Soldiers of Fortune, a 25-year member of the Special Operations Association and member 
of pilots for 911truth.org. What an impressive resume. No doubt this is going to be a classic and fascinating show. Hello, Mr. Lear, and welcome to The Veritas Show. How are you? Hi, Mel. Just fine, and uh, thanks for inviting me back. John, for the few in the audience who may not be aware of your background, I'd like you to spend a few moments sharing with us some of your courageous efforts, adventures, and anecdotes from your days in Southeast Asia. Can you share with us some of that part of your life? Uh, yeah, I went to, uh, I uh, started to work for a contract pilot uh, for the CIA in 1967, and uh, what we were doing was uh, faring uh, O2As and O2Bs, which were the Cessna push-pull airplane, which were used as forward air control. And in those days, they had uh, they needed the aircraft so quickly they didn't have any number one any boats to put them on, uh, and it would take too long to get there. So they just uh, formed a group, a cover company, and uh, hired a bunch of us, and we flew them over there. I, I uh, did that for uh, <clears throat> on and off for uh, four years, and I took ten airplanes over. We'd uh, we go over the route. Um, we'd leave Wichita, Kansas, where they were uh, built, and make one stop on our way to uh, Hamilton Air Force Base there in uh, San Francisco. Then we'd go to uh, Hickam Air Force Base in uh, uh, Honolulu, and uh, from there to Midway Island, and from there to Wake. From there to Guam to the uh, SAC base there, which was called uh, Anderson Air Force Base. The other runway is uh, Aganya, and that's the uh, big Navy there. And then from there, we'd go over to uh, uh, Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. And uh, and from there, in country, we land uh, at Nha Trang, about halfway up the coast there uh, to the DMZ. <clears throat> and we'd uh, pack up some of the stuff we were going to take back. Now, we didn't take back the tanks the extra ferry tanks, but we did take back the pumps and the HF radio and the life rafts. And we hitched a ride down to Saigon, and uh, we had a commercial ticket back. We'd always go through uh, Hong Kong to get a little R&R, but we had to stay in Saigon for uh, three days under house arrest. And the reason was is because there was no customs uh, and immigration in Nha Trang, and uh, we weren't, uh, uh, we didn't carry military ID because we were CIA. So, uh, they put us under arrest, kept us there for uh, three days, and then let us take an airline out and come back and pick up another one. And that was really enjoyable. Um, that was, see, then in 1972, I went to Cambodia to fly um, uh, <clears throat> um, Convair 440s. They were ex-Finair. Finair is an um, airline in uh, Scandinavia. <clears throat> and these were... Um, Convair 440s. They had. Uh, they were in an immaculate condition. They had the old CB. Not. I mean the old. They had the great CB17 engine, and we had uh, 115, 145 uh, fuel over there, so we could use water injection and uh, could, could get. I think we uh, could uh, pull as far, much as uh, 63 inches of power. And now, John, the, was that during your time with Continental Air Services? No, after uh, Cambodia, I went up to uh, Laos and uh, uh, flew for Continental Air Services, and uh, I flew the uh, the Twin Otter and the C-46, and uh, it was great. It was great time. I, I, I really, it was exciting times. I flew 560 missions. Half of those were combat missions, and um, <clears throat> it was uh, it, it was very interesting. And for the listeners, Continental Air Services Inc., known as Cassie 
was formed in 1965 by Continental Airlines when the government suggested a less visible air transport alternative to the CIA-associated Air America. Can you tell us about the courageous and fierce Hmong tribesmen in Laos and their bravery and loyalty to their U.S. allies? Yeah, the bravery and loyalty. We were we supported them. Uh, General Vang Pao um, was their leader, and the CIA supported them uh, until uh, finally we lost. I think it, uh, the last flight was made in 1975, and a bunch of the Hmong uh, have uh, settlements all over the United States. I recently went to one. Um, I used to fly with a pilot named Dave Kuba. And uh, and I, he was with me when we got shot down in a twin otter in uh, Central Laos, and uh, he came to live in Las Vegas after you know he retired, and and uh, they had he was there so long in Vinchin that the Hmong gave him a uh, formal burial ceremony, and it was very very touching. It lasted about two or three hours. It was a very ceremonial, uh, had cer- ceremonial dancing and. Uh, um, and um, uh, speeches. It, it was it was really nice. That was about John, uh, a year ago. Were you ever wounded, or did you come close to being shut down? No, we we got shot down. What happened is we were running into a uh, we were delivering ammo, and what we do is <clears throat> because uh, we're working in such close quarters there that um, uh, flying a twin otter, we had six loads of ammo, and we'd fly real low over the troops that we were dropping to, uh, and and the kicker was the guy working in the back, and he'd push it out, and we had what they called G7 parachutes, and they'd open instantaneously to, um, uh, to um, uh, uh, reduce the impact. And uh, what happened is uh, uh, either Dave didn't hear because he was flying, uh, or we missed the call, but for whatever, we were supposed to turn sharp left after the drop, and we waited just a little bit too long, and they hosed us down with AK-47, which hit a fuel line in the strut, which um, which uh, uh, shot the engine out. And so we headed back to, um, uh, we were working out of a place called Lima uh, Site uh, 69, Bang Ding, uh, not Bang Ding, um, can't remember the name of it. And uh, on our way back, uh, <clears throat> there was a huge, as uh, the, you know, the cargo door is open in the Twin Otter. It's always open. Uh, it's just a hole in the airplane. And what happened is where it shot the, the fuel, the fuel was uh, pumping out of the strut. And because of the wind flow, it was pumping into the cabin. So I wanted to call Cricket. And the Cricket is the, the airplanes in the um, um the search of the uh, airplanes that worked uh, <clears throat> at uh, high altitude and took all the communications. And if anything went wrong, you'd call up uh, Cricket and say, Cricket, uh, uh, this is uh, Papa Golf Victor. Uh, we've been hit, and we're headed to uh, Lima 1-6. And uh, for all any of you guys that have flown in Southeast Asia, you'll always remember the Cricket would come on and say, this is Cricket on guard with an airstrike warning to all aircraft. Avoid the areas, Tango Golf, uniform. Uh, Sierra from the time 0700 to 0800. This is Cricket on Guard out. And uh, anyway, we were very fortunate. We managed to make it. Uh, I had the option there of calling Cricket, but uh, I just wondered if I pressed that microphone button since it was so much fuel and foam or uh, fuel and fumes coming through the air. Spark. 
I thought it might spark it, but uh, right. I held the microphone real close and uh, and just gave him a message, and we made it. John, in hindsight, what was your opinion of that war and how it was pursued? Uh, with hindsight? Yes. Yeah, well, with hindsight, you know, the uh, the war in Southeast Asia was uh, for the express purposes of the uh, the propagation, cultivation, and and um, uh, and sale of uh, heroin drugs, yeah. heroin and, and poppies. The same reason we took over um, Afghanistan. Uh, the, all that war was about was securing the Hindu Kush in the northeast part of uh, Afghanistan. That's the only reason we're there. Uh, the the fact about Taliban and uh, and Al Qaeda being terrorists, there's not a shred of truth to that. Uh, if you want my opinion, the only terrorists there are, uh, are Israelis. Israelis acting as Taliban and Al Qaeda. But anyway, the uh, <clears throat> poppy uh, output in uh, 2001 was, uh, according to um, uh, New York Times, in 2001 was uh, I think 14 percent. And then, according to them, in 2007, September, it had risen to 94%, which is it has now. So the reason that's so important is the, the secret government, that's where they get their cash from. That's why they don't have to go to Congress and say, hey, we'd like some money. Here's why we need it. They don't have to mess with Congress. They just uh, cultivate, uh, distribute, uh, and sell the illegal drugs themselves. And, and when you think about it, it's not such a bad deal. I mean, they do it in conjunction with uh, military intelligence. Six, which is the the CIA equivalent over over in England, and uh, you know when you look at it from a practical standpoint of view, you don't want some guy like Doctor No or some mafia guy handle those trillions and trillions of dollars. You'd rather have your own guys being the bad guy, right? That's exactly right. You eliminate your competition, create a monopoly, and you control the price. <laughs> yeah, and then they have the you know the. Uh, every once in a while, they'll have a staged, uh, a staged bust, you know, where they'll bust several hundred pounds. And uh, I think there was a funny deal here just lately. A, a G1, I mean, a G2 or something crashed in Bolivia or, or, or even the United States, I think, with a full load, you know, of four or five uh, tons of uh, cocaine. And everybody was trying to deny it. But it was pretty hard to do because it was a U.S. registered airplane. Nobody went to jail, you know, that kind of thing. You probably heard Catherine Austin Fitz. She's a financial expert. She says the drug war is the most efficient war we've ever fought because we keep the prices up and we control the competition. That's what wars are about. Exactly. Have you revisited that area where you spent so many days and lost so many friends? Uh, in Southeast Asia? Yes. No, but Dave Kuba did. And Dave was my... My good buddy, uh, who passed away here a year ago, and we had a uh, Laotian uh, burial ceremony, and he went back and he brought back some videos, and they're really good. Uh, you know, good videos of the uh, plane of jars, uh, which we used to refer to as the PDJ, and there's these ceremonial jars that uh, are up to 10 feet in height, and they're gigantic stone jars, and nobody knows who made them or how they made them. And he got to go to a couple places. The only place they couldn't go was Long Chin, and that was the super secret CIA base that uh, we had our main operations out of. Uh, Dave did get to have a quick glance as they flew over it on the way back to Vinchin from, uh, uh, from the airport that they were at, but that's all he got. 
I get an email, by the way, John, we are heard by people in 90 countries. And one U.S. historian who lives there in Vietnam now emailed me to let me know that he's been studying the medieval Vietnamese tribes and they believe in inter- interdimensional beings even until this point. Do you yeah. believe in that too? Oh, absolutely. What was it like flying night drops over the jungle, the clear night skies so full of stars, but so full of potential danger too? That's the only thing I never got. I never got a a night drop in the year that I was there, and I was scheduled for several, But uh, and it was a very lucrative deal because you got paid in cash, and... uh, and, you know, you didn't have any ID or anything, and they were called night drops, and, and uh, sometimes they were simple, sometimes they were complex, but I never got one, no. <laughs> Did you ever get a chance to visit the ancient ruins, some of which allude to gods from the skies and stars? Uh, no, they were under um, communist control then, under the Khmer Rouge, up at the Siem Reap. And I just read an article the other day about how interesting it is these days and, and how they, you know, it's so modern and they have the nice little bars there and everybody's so polite and, and they have the kiosks and everything. And, you know, all I could remember is being war-torn, everybody getting shot and, and that. It's, it's just, you know, it's amazing how, what a difference uh, 35 years makes. We never thought we'd be drinking tea with the Japanese and now they're our friends. <laughs> Did you ever hear or see for yourself any of the Foo Fighters phenomenon so common in World War II? No, no. Um, and by you'll talk about uh, strange lights. I only saw a couple of strange lights. One was uh, on descent over uh, Palm Springs going into Los Angeles. And it was in, I believe, 1966. I was in a Learjet. I'd just been cleared to descend, and I was... Uh, doing the descent, it was in the afternoon, beautiful, clear day, and I saw this thing, uh, an object, it looked like a, a bathtub, and it was going from um, left to right and under me. And uh, I thought, hey, that's one of those uh, M2F2s, you know, the <laughs> ones that uh, the $6 million man uh, got crashed in? Right. I even remember, I even remember calling the, um, the chief uh, pilot at Learjet, uh, whose name was Hank Beard and unfortunately just passed away about two weeks ago. Uh, and I remember uh, calling him up and said, hey, you'll never guess what I saw the other day. He said, what? And I said, an M2F2. And only 30 years later do I realize how utterly ridiculous that is, that a, that a, a highly uh, um, test experimental airplane should be flown through the main approach corridor of Los Angeles. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's not going to happen. So uh, that was clearly unidentified. Did your dad ever witness any UFOs in yeah. his years of flying? Yeah, I think he did. He was the, he had uh, seen one or two, but uh, you remember uh, back in those days, uh, as I was growing, I was born in 1942, so when the UFO flap came in Oh, like 1952, 1953. My dad was so involved in that UFO stuff and anti-gravity stuff with, you know, the top guys in that time. Well, General Hoyt Vandenberg was a very close friend of my dad. Also, uh, Randy Lovelace of the Lovelace Clinic in Albuquerque and uh, uh, Jimmy Doolittle. All those guys were around the house. So, you know, my dad was uh, up to his ears in uh, in the UFO and, um, uh, and alien stuff. <clears throat> But in, uh, I believe it was 1953, he made a trip to Bolivia, and he made a public comment that he believed UFOs were real, you know, and someday um, uh, interplanetary um, uh, 
uh, travel would be possible. And I guess they came down on him, Mel, like you wouldn't believe, because he never said another public word. And, you know, he was so involved, they didn't expect him to, to do something like that, but he was very outspoken. And I guess they just went to him and they said, look, Bill, we've been friends for a long time. You ain't say anything like that again, and we'll, we'll not, we're not, you'll be okay, but we'll kill Moya, we'll kill your kids, we'll kill your dog, we'll kill your parakeet, uh, but you'll be okay. So he never talked again? He never, he never made any public comment ever again on it. But I just talked to some people recently who uh, uh, live in Wichita and did work for him at that time uh, and uh, did work on the anti-grav stuff. And as you know, the anti-grav stuff has been real since 1956. Uh, you know, we have all kinds of anti-grav craft uh, that fly all over the place, and uh, but it's never discussed. And nobody ever brings it up. You'd think that Aviation Week and Space Technology would at least say, hey, what's going on with anti-grav, you know? But no, there's not one single word. And the, and the reason is, is, is it's real, it's true, it goes on. I'm sure the the uh, B-2 is uh, full of anti-grav, and so is the, uh, uh, what's the new one, the F-22, is that the new one? I forget. So those things, you know, that's the stuff we see, but the stuff that is really secret, we never get a chance to see. Well, I've heard that, uh, I think it's the F-22, uh, supposedly has electromagnetic anti-gravitic systems in place. Yeah, yeah. When you get together with your special forces buddies at your China One gatherings, what is the atmosphere there? Uh, it's about the, you know, talking about the old days. I just uh, met with, uh, we had the, uh, the reunion of uh, Continental Air Services there in Reno <clears throat> about uh, six or seven months ago. And it's usually just about, you know, the guys that have passed away and the funny things that happened over there. We, uh, you know, when we were flying, there's never, ever any discussion about weird stuff or uh, UFOs or any of that type of stuff, at least when I've been around. Can you tell us what planes you usually flew, and did you have a favorite bird? In my life? Yes. Uh, I think I flew about 160 different types of airplanes, and, and they all held wow. some kind of uh, romance, some particular, you know, um, love. Uh, you know, the last airliner that I flew was the uh, L-1011 uh, Lucky TriStar, and that's one of my favorites. Uh, I flew the F-104A uh, Lockheed Starfighter just before I retired, and that was the first time I went uh, Mach 2. And, of course, the Learjet is very, very close to my heart, although I didn't fly it all that much. I have about 1,800 hours in it. And, you know, most of the, uh, the, those airplanes all had some uh, wonderful part, uh, you know, the, 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 something that I particularly liked about it. You know so much now from alien ships around Saturn to moon bases. It's, it's a plethora of information that you have. What perspective has it given to you since the war in Indochina to now? Well, you know, when I was, that was in the, in the uh, 70s, early 70s, I knew nothing then. Um, I knew of no kind of conspiracies or anything until 1985. And, of course, now... Uh, I'm still learning stuff, you know, hand over fist, but, you know, in the last year, it's become absolutely ironclad, lead pipe cinch that uh, we faked Apollo. There was no Apollo mission. Nobody went to the moon. It was all faked. And I have, you know, hundreds of pages of data, videotape, everything. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> I just got through reading a book called um, One Small Step, 
The Great Moon Hoax and the Race to Dominate Earth and Space by Gerhard Wisniewski, a German author. And, you know, I have a bunch of those. Apollo is a hoax book. But this guy puts the final nail in the coffin of the Apollo hoax. It did not happen. And the way I came across that, Mel, is about nine months ago, a friend of mine, uh, Ron Schmidt, who runs uh, our website, thelivingmoon.com. Great website, by the way. Uh, sent me uh, three video, NASA video, uh, videos of the landings. It was Apollo 14, 15, and 17. He, and all he said, he said, take a look at these and tell me what you think. And I looked at those, Mel, and I said, holy smokes, we faked the whole damn thing. So I got the other ones. I got uh, 11, uh, 12, and 14, and uh, looked at all six. And from a pilot's perspective, from a, um, a photographer, video photographer's perspective, um, it was just fake from from um, from the word from the get go. Uh, you know, and the main thing is, as you're descending uh, out of uh, it says the thirty thousand feet, you know, the craters don't get any bigger because what they're using is that fake twenty two foot uh, fake moon that uh, NASA had back at uh, Langley uh, Research Center. And they, you know, they had all the craters paint on it just like it was. But if you're faking a, you know, coming down from 30,000, you know, to landing, this, the perspective, the diameters of the craters aren't going to change uh, as they would in real life. You know, if you're in real life, they're going to go from really, really tiny to, you know, huge that you can actually land in. So that was the kicker for me. And, it, you know, when I looked at that thing, I got a, a sickly feeling to my stomach saying, oh, my God, we've all been hoaxed. And uh, so one thing led to another. And I just had to I realized that, boy, that that other than 9-11, that has to be the biggest hoax on my mankind. So, John, you believe the Apollo mission was one small step for man, one giant hoax for mankind. Hold it right there. We're here with John Lear on The Veritas Show. I'm Al Fabregas, and we'll be right back with much more. Stay with us. show ml fabregas and i'm here with john lear john let's take a few minutes to get your opinion of two men first your father the legendary bill lear i realize that in your lectures you have discussed your tumultuous relationship and your division over the development of his last project the lear fan if this is not too difficult a subject and too personal I think our listeners would be curious of the personal impact and revelations that must occur when you're exposed to such a renaissance and energetic but type A personality. Your father, who had no formal education, was an inventive genius. 
His interests, ranging from radio to airplanes, wire recorders, prefabricated homes, and steam-powered cars. I bet many didn't know this, but your father had 150 patents, and though he was best known for founding the Learjet Corporation, the first manufacturer of business jets, he also developed the A-Track system, which was widely used in the 60s and 70s. In the 1920s, your father and a partner, Elmer Wavering, invented the first practical car radio, calling it Motorola. He developed radio direction finders, autopilots, and the first fully automatic aircraft landing system, and his Learavian series of portable radios, which incorporated radio direction finder circuits, as well as broadcast band coverage. And ahead of his time in 1968, your father also started work on a closed-circuit steam turbine to power cars and buses and built a transit bus and car using this turbine system. John, I don't know why, but the name Nikola Tesla comes to mind right about now. Your dad was quite a busy man and a tireless inventor. I can't imagine it was both exciting and difficult around your house, What was it like for your mom and you and your siblings to move and to be involved with such a whirlwind of change and never-ending pressure and adventure? Well, you know, over the years, and he's been gone now since 1978, so that's 88, 98, 30 years, and uh, feelings soften and, and you forget the hard times and everything. And I often think if I could just give be given... 10 seconds to tell him uh, something, I think I'd say, Dad, I still think you were an asshole. (laughs) No, uh, there was a lot of hard things going on, and when you're that close to a program, you know that he's taking a lot of credit for a lot of things everybody else did. When you went to work for Lear Incorporated, just like every other company in those days, you were required to sign a release that, you know, anything that was invented while you were there belonged to Bill Lear, you know, Sr., so... Um, you know, a lot of that stuff he didn't do. I don't think he gave enough credit to the to the, the guys that actually did it. Um, Elmer Wavering could give you a few words on that. Uh, but so could a lot of other people. But there's no doubt that, you know, he did make the achievement. He is credited with it. And uh, the Learjet uh, certainly was a, a fine achievement. It started out as a pusher airplane. Actually, it was going to have two... Uh, uh, pusher airplanes, uh, and a lot of people think that that was the first business jet. It wasn't. The first business jet was the uh, <clears throat> was the Lockheed Jetstar, and uh, the second one was um, um, the North American Sabreliner, and uh, then came the uh, Marine Sa- French Marine Saunier, and I think there was one other before Learjet came along. But the Learjet was the one with the most pizzazz and the biggest name and everything. And that's why everybody referred to any type jet as a Learjet. And that's why they always say, oh, yeah, the Learjet was the very first one. Your dad had the vision to go out and do it. Well, to some extent, you know, that's not exactly true because there were four or five other business jets out there in the field. Once again, this reminds me of Tesla. He invented the light bulb, but uh, uh, who was the one who who took credit for the light bulb? Um, let's see. Edison took Edison, credit. Edison, correct, correct. And John, one other provocative person we would like you to discuss is Ingo Swan. Have you met Mr. Swan and perhaps delved into remote viewing, which he was so instrumental in formalizing? I'm deeply involved in uh, remote viewing. Uh, I've, I've had a formal course, lengthy course, with um, um, Angela Thompson, 
and or Angela Thompson Smith, I think. Right. Uh, I see her occasionally. I also see uh, Ron Blackburn, who's into remote viewing. I've read uh, Ingo Swan's book. I'd give anything. Penetration. Uh, what did I say? Penetration. I uh, love yeah, that book. Yeah. Penetration. It's got so much interesting things in there, and it was just, you know, you know, it's kind of, if you could say a, a book so technical was written from the heart, it was written, hey, this is what happened to me, you know, here it is in, in print. And I love that book. And now, uh, Ingo, I've heard, is uh, as of a year ago, moving out to Las Vegas. Whether he does or not, I don't know. But if he does, I sure hope I get a chance to meet that guy. I can't wait to ever have a, uh, a conversation with Ingo. I know he's very secluded lately, and he doesn't want to grant any interviews. But you mentioned Penetration, which is actually one of my favorite books. It's an out-of-print book with plenty of demand. I can't understand why the publishers wouldn't want to reprint it again. I've seen it selling for $500 on Amazon. Absolutely, $500 for that book. I don't know. No, no. You're revealed in Coast to Coast AM on a chat some time ago that you had studied with Angela Thompson Smith, you just mentioned her, a remote viewer instructor. How did that go? It was absolutely interesting because I am the guy that can't tell when the telephone was going to ring. I can't tell when my wife's mad. I have no, uh, you know, secret ability of knowing what's going to happen, you know, in the next minute or anything that. And what I wanted to do is find out if, and this is after I read uh, Joe McMonigle's book, uh, Mind Track, I wanted to find out if I could do that because they were saying anybody can do it. It's just the degree of ability that you're able to to, to actually do it. So uh, I took a course with her, and I'm telling you something, Mel, I think it was either the second or third day, I was shocked at what I could do. And I still have the stuff that she was having us draw because, you know, you draw stuff. Um, <clears throat> you, uh, she puts a um, National Geographic photo in a in a in a plain brown uh, non see through envelope, and then you you take a crayon or a pencil and you draw what's in there. And I was doing it, and it was it was completely shocking. I wish I'd have had time to pursue it, but I've just got so many other things. And at that time, I was still. Uh, flying as an airline captain, so you know I just didn't have time to devote to it as as much time as I wanted to. Same with me. I started uh, courses with Major Ed Dames. What do you think of Major Ed Dames? Uh, I'll reserve that uh, opinion so that I don't hurt anybody's feelings. Granted. What targets did you remote view, and did you attempt to see ETs on the moon or the moon? No. No, we uh, we did some uh, attempted remote viewing of uh, of Area 51 and S4, and I can't remember the, the other stuff. But uh, uh, oh, I know what I did. Uh, we used to have a an outbounder every day. We'd pick one in the class, and he'd leave the house, and we'd all sit there and write exactly at what time he was seeing, and uh, I nailed that. And uh, it was just an interesting course. I would recommend it to anybody that has the time. You're not going to get anything in three days. Uh, you know, I took the seven-day course, and uh, and I was very satisfied with it. John, during your interview with Project Camelot last year, in April of 08, in Las Vegas, you mentioned in some detail the tragic death of astronaut Gus Grissom and his crewmates Chaffee and White during a ground test in 1967. And you implied that it was actually murder, or at least deliberate negligent homicide or manslaughter, since the powers that be allowed the tragedy to unfold. I found this background on Grissom. Grissom was an easy scapegoat, as he had been falsely accused of, quote-unquote, screwing the pooch on the second suborbital 
Mercury Flight, Freedom 7. When the explosive bolts fired prematurely, leading to the loss of the capsule and almost in the drowning of Grissom himself, even though he had been a brave fighter pilot with over 100 combat missions over Korea, it is well known that Grissom and his crewmates had worried and complained about a fire danger and shoddy work on that first Apollo. Grissom going so far as to hang a lemon on the capsule just the day before that fatal horrible fire, and that even in a 1966 editorial in the Journal of Space and Aeronautics, it was asserted that safety protocols for the Apollo project were thoroughly lacking. Can you discuss those events briefly and why you think that the fire was allowed to happen and delayed the Apollo program and eliminate a rather vocal thorn of an astronaut? Well, of course, uh, Apollo was a hoax. It never went. And, uh, and uh, Gus Grissom could see that. He made the statement, hey, look, this, ain't thing go- this thing ain't going to the moon in, in two years. This thing, this thing ain't going to the moon in ten years. And he was right. It wasn't going to the moon. They were using that money. Uh, they were faking the Apollo, and they were using that money for a, uh orbiting uh, weapon system platforms that are in use today. There's between 8 and 12 of them orbiting around uh, the Earth, controlled by uh, USS SATCOM, uh, or STRATCOM. And uh, at least one of those uh, weapons was used to destroy the World Trade Center. But... Uh, um, Gus Grissom was uh, very outspoken, and they knew they had to get rid of him because no, no other way they were going to shut him up. And they wanted to get rid of him in such a way that everybody else would look at that and say, uh-oh, I better not say anything wrong. Now, <clears throat> one of the interesting things is that during that fire, there's a fourth astronaut in there who um, was uh, part of the secret um uh, secret space program, right? And the the others, uh, the astronaut. What uh, I hear this comment all the time. They say, uh, uh, "Oh, you couldn't fit another astronaut in there." Well, that's BS. There was plenty of room down there by the um, uh, environmental um, um, <laughs> environmental. Uh, uh, I call it. I think they call it EVM machine. And uh, you put your head up on the. Uh, <clears throat> on the console and your feet down into where they kept the moon rocks. But anyway, the reason they had a fourth astronaut is because that the, he would help. He had a complete knowledge of the system, and they would help him unravel it uh, as they were running into all these problems. Now, the fact is, uh, the guy that was supposed to be there was Joe, uh, Joe Shea. Joe Shea was head of uh, ASPO, and... Uh, for some reason, whatever it was, Joe Shea had to be in New York, and so they put this secret astronaut in there, and uh, and I don't know the, whether the guy that put the secret astronaut knew they were going to kill him or not, but uh, <clears throat> he did get killed, and the reason any report you read about Apollo, um, uh, first of all, when the doctors got there, after they got the doors open, the Apollo, the astronauts were still breathing. But they sent the astronaut. They sent the. Uh, they told the doctors that um, uh, that the uh, astronauts were dead, and they just left. And the reason they had to do that is they didn't want anybody else to find the doctors to find that there's a fourth guy in there. And what happened is uh, when they uh, when that fire happened, National Security Agency, which is the one that's over NASA, 
you know, locked down that whole area there, and they became in total charge for the two hours it took to get the fourth astronaut out. And then when they got the fourth astronaut out, they had to put everything back exactly as if that astronaut hadn't been there. And that's why any report you read on the... um, uh, on the uh, Apollo 1 fire says that it took six and a half hours to get the astronauts out. Well, the reason did is just what I've said. You know, there was another guy in there, and they had to be sure there was no discovery of that guy. Now, <clears throat> I have the name of that astronaut. And you do? I I'm not to disclose it. Oh. But, um, um, uh, and what I do is keep that name until I find somebody uh, who can confirm it. Now, at the last San Jose UFO uh, meeting uh, a conference about two years ago, a lady came up to me after my um, talk in which I told this story, and she says, John, I can tell you you're right. I'm close with one of the astronauts' families, and I'm not going to tell you which one, and they say that they knew there was a fourth astronaut. And I said, well, thank you for that confirmation. It's incredible that... They were breathing. I didn't know that. They were breathing when they opened the door, if you will. Yeah, they were alive for about uh, 15 or 20 minutes after, um, after they said they were dead. It was, it was 100% oxygen there. So I heard that, that their suits actually melted on their skin. That's how bad it was. But why would there be a simple... That was only a test. Why would there be a fourth person there? It was very complicated. I mean, they were they were trying to make these guys, these Chaffee, White, and Grissom, think that they were actually going to the moon. And at that time, I think there was 20,000 uh, squawks on that thing. They were so far behind, they had to work, you know, night and day just to make people think that they might do it, which, you know, which they weren't going to do it. The plugs out test is everything except launch. I had uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell a couple of weeks ago, and I asked him why he thought we won't return to the moon until 50 years since the last time. And he basically said that Kennedy, during his famous speech, actually gave the speech to make the Russians think that we were going to, but we were not prepared. This was a 21st century deal, not a late 60s or 70s deal. Your thoughts on that? Um Ed Mitchell is is a really great guy, and let me think here. Uh, I want to get... Let me see if I can put my hands on. Hold on. Can't find it. I wanted to find and read his book, page four at the bottom of the page. Um, I think it's called In the Way of the Moon or whatever. He says, um, you know, in the times I go around to talk about um, my... my experiences on the moon, I'm always asked two questions. One is, how do you go to the bathroom in space? And number two is, what does it really feel like to be on the moon? He says, you know, I never have any trouble with the first one because I realize, you know, I tell him about how we have the diapers and the pads and the foams and the, and the sponges. He said, he said but the, as to the second one, how does it really feel like? I can't remember. Now, that's, those are his words. The same thing, uh, Boss Aldrin, that's exactly what he says. He doesn't remember. Boss Aldrin throws up when he tries to think about it. Why do you believe they say that? Is it mind control, or are they just yeah, told not to? mind control. We didn't go. We didn't go, but they couldn't tell the astronauts that we didn't go. They had to pull some kind of uh, super advanced uh, uh, mind control, which they had available to them at that time, um, to, to say that, you know, we did go, you felt fine, it was a wonderful program, everything was going great, you know. But, you know, it's ridiculous. Apollo 6, I think, was the first Apollo launched. 
uh, as a practice. They had 20,000 squawks. Apollo 7 launches, and there's zero squawks. Apollo 8, they launch, and it goes around the moon. It's ridiculous. Apollo 9, they launch, you know, and they do a couple more tests. Apollo 10 goes and does a low pass at the moon. Apollo 11 goes, uh, no problems. Other than Apollo 13, there's not one single problem on the whole program. Now, I believed it, you know, but I don't anymore. Do you think that the fact that Dickie Slayton has stated, and since it was well known at the time, that Gus was to be the first man to be honored with stepping on the moon in the Apollo program, not Neil Armstrong, that this contributed or led to his being seen as a dangerous wild card by a program who needed or wanted to be sure of 100% astronaut control to avoid any leaking of the alternative space program and other lunar realities? I hadn't heard that story, but I'm going to check on it. It sounds interesting to me. Do you have an opinion as to why North American Rockwell has been given the Apollo contract rather than McDonnell Aircraft, who had successfully built and managed the Mercury and Gemini systems? No, but I knew the, the answer to that question. I can't remember what it was. Was it a political decision or part? Yeah, uh, yeah uh, political, and I don't remember what the answer was. Or a deliberate diversion distraction maneuver, right? No, yeah, it was uh, political, something to do with it. And, you know, since I started this uh, investigation now last year and I realized they hoaxed it, I've read darn near every Apollo book, so I know quite a bit about that program. So much of the work was shifted to inexperienced production managers and engineers in Governor Reagan's California and other novice locations in politically powerful states, which surely contributed to the shoddy and dangerous engineering mistakes on Apollo 1 and possibly Apollo 13. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, they they documented a lot of that in one of the books I read, talking about the you know going out for martinis at lunch, you know, and uh, and uh, uh, beers, uh, you know, in the afternoon and stuff like that. I mean, that contributed a lot to the uh, to the problems they had. Was the purpose to make spaceflight appear so dangerous, or expensive, or even exotic as to make the possibility of a more successful and advanced program seem impossible or unfathomable by a world population, first horrified by the incineration of the Apollo 1 crew and the near loss of Apollo 13? And even the glitches on Dr. Mitchell's Apollo 14, where the lunar module, docking, had to be done manually to overcome a near-mission-ending glitch? What do you think was the real reason? No, the reason uh, for uh, the faking was to pull the money off for what they were really trying to do in conjunction with the Russians. You know, the United States and the Russians have always been together. Uh, there was never any um, uh, Cold War. That's all BS. Uh, we were always working with them in conjunction with them. And we do have the secret space program, which I told you, the, the uh, orbiting weapons platforms that have all those interesting platforms. And and uh, <clears throat> we see the space shuttle go up today, and we're told that the International Space Station has three people in it, and we see the space shuttle go up with uh, seven people. That's so much BS now. They've got, uh, I think, it's my personal opinion right now, uh, STRATCOM or whatever the new... Uh, uh, operation is it controls the uh, astronauts of the Army, of the Navy, of the Air Force, and NASA. Uh, I think there's about 5,000 current qualified 
uh, astronauts. Now everybody thinks, oh, the shuttle is the only thing that's man-rated. That's not true. I mean, they have Zenit-1, uh, Titan, uh, Delta. They have several others that uh, launch people up to the different places they go. And what did me off on this was that <clears throat> last uh, September, one of the uh, uh, one of the uh, shuttles goes off, and as usual, we wait three days for it to um, to dock with ISS. Right. And so I got to thinking with Ron Schmidt. I said, "What What do you think's going on here?" And he said, "Oh, well, you know, they have to open the doors and cool the thing off, and and then there was the I forget which uh, <clears throat> which." Um, a forum I was on might have been uh, I can't remember, but oh maybe it was ATS, and we had those bozos on there that uh, like uh, Jim Oberg and those guys, and they'd say, oh well, uh, yeah, they had so many checklists to do, and I'm thinking checklists. Listen, pal, I'm a pilot. Uh, I mean, 72 hours of checklist to dock with a with a um, with the International Space Station that you're you know all it is is uh, nine minutes to orbit from Kennedy. That's all it takes, and now I got to take 72 hours of space. So I got to thinking not only that, but you know when it undocks, uh, it's exactly 54 minutes from. <clears throat> Uh, from uh, the International Space Station to landing at Kennedy, but it always takes two days, at least 48 hours. What's going on here? So what we did is we finally figured out that what it was doing. Oh, and the other thing that fit into this puzzle was that whenever the um, the cargo bay door would open at the International Space Station, it'd always be at least half empty. So what we finally figured out hmm. is as soon as it took off, it was hooking up with these other uh, orbiting weapons platforms and unloading food. Uh, you know, technicians uh, and supplies, and it, you know, get the first uh, five or six uh, before it had to dock with uh, <clears throat> before it had to dock with the International Space Station. And then we found out that just coincidentally, uh, before the uh, shuttle would dock with the uh, International Space Station, two Progress Russian Progress missiles would dock with the station. So what they were doing is, you know, the shuttle would dock up there. They'd unload all the stuff that the Russians had shot up there, you know, and unload that into the space shuttle. That's why you never find any notes, uh, I mean, any uh, uh, recorded uh, landing weights of the shuttle or anything, what it really lands at, because it's, a, you know, it's uh, either extraordinarily light or extraordinarily heavy. I'm sure everyone who's listening agrees that time and cargo space on the shuttle must be very valuable, every minute and every inch. However, it takes the crew three days, that's 72 hours after lunching, to rest and open the doors. I agree, it seems absurd. But are you telling us here that there's a secret space station that the shuttle docks with first and unloads cargo, and that's where the 72 hours are spent? 72 hours are enough for more than one space station. Do you believe there's more than one? Yeah, there's between 8 and 12 of them, eight? in addition to the International Space Station. And what they've do, been doing is building those since 1968. In 1968, the Aquila uh, cargo uh, rocket was uh, launched from Kwajalein. And a lot of people think that in terms of launch facilities as Vandenberg um, and... Um, and Kennedy, and I think there's other one. In fact, there's 24 major launch facilities around the world, which include Australia, Melville Island. I mean, they're all over the place. And and yes, there are between eight and 12 orbiting laboratories. And you can on uh, uh, the LivingMoon.com, you can see uh, John uh, Leonard Walsham's um, pictures of those uh, orbiting weapons. John, we have to take another break. 
When we come back, I want to ask you about reverse engineering technology that we may possess. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Stay with us. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com, click on Members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, detoxified iodine, supplements, a USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. <laughs> 